Subway Sports Talk. Dan, 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 clear of the closing doors, please. Welcome to Subway Sports Talk. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning into SST on Apple Podcasts, app, Spotify, and now on YouTube. We got a jam-packed episode today. We got to talk about the Mets and the Yankees on a little bumpy road, one more bumpy than the other. We'll get to it. Uh, and then we also have some NBA free agency takes to get off our chest. And then lastly, Andrew will return to do some predictions for Thor, Love, and Thunder uh, and, you know, talk about the reviews a little bit. Now, obviously we haven't seen it yet, so we're not going to spoil anything. But predictions, have some fun with that. So that's what we got. We got Andrew Kalanya here, Mets, Yankees, free agency, Marvel's new Thor Love and Thunder. That's the that's the docket right now. But first, Andrew Kalanya, what's up, brother? How's it going? Man, I'm I'm really concerned here. I feel like a lot of other people concerned are out here, not just about the, the Yankees and Mets, but like as you, as you uh, said before, the love and thunder uh, reviews are not great, my friend. Mm. They're not not great. Yeah, we're going to talk about a panic button for the Mets and the Yankees, and perhaps there should be a panic button discussion for Thor Love and Thunder. I have I have thoughts that I'm going to save on that. Yeah, as much as I would love to get right into that, that's at the end of the pod because mm-hmm. uh, I have I have thoughts. I have thoughts, and it honestly here's a segue for you. I think there's something to do with the expectations of people right now that is a little bit extra and a little bit ramped up that makes it hard for good things to be good for great things to be great without being legendary type type of situations. If, if you're catching my drift, you know, that may be a little bit of a tease for later, but first let's talk about where the action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer with tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports. You can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right. Make your first bet up to $1,000, and if it doesn't win, you get another shot to cash in. Thanks for that risk-free, baby. You could throw down on all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, over-unders, and props. Your betting options are endless. I'm thinking right now with the Mets and Yankees going into their own little four-game sets here. The Mets have the Marlins. The Yankees have the Red Sox. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. These are two of the most profitable teams in the MLB this year on the money line. The Mets should win the series against the Marlins. The Yankees should win the series against the Red Sox. I parlayed them together just last night when the Mets won in extras and the Yankees won 16-0. Uh, yes, that's a hit, plus 140. Best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPM. Make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code TBPM only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. On the Mets and Yankees front, we're going to talk about panic meter. We're going to talk about how worried we are about these two rosters. Let me just go off the cuff here. It's obvious like it's obvious that the Mets panic is a little bit more intensified than the Yankees right now, right? So as a Yankees guy, as a, as a baseball lover like yourself is this even a fair way to intro the topic for the Yankees because it is technically one of their worst stretches of the year however it's still been pretty damn good so is this even a fair way to get to this conversation right now I think so because they played the Astros and they 
they they were you know we the game we went to you know they were getting they went 15 consecutive innings without getting a hit and then you know the game the subway sports talk went to which was an amazing game probably top five game baseball game i ever went to in my entire life um able to you know two judge walk-offs you know be able to squeak two out wins or you know they weren't able to they would score a lot of runs the offense looked flat otherwise so um against the toughest competition probably the team that you're going to have to beat to get to the world series you come out kind of looking as flat as a team could possibly look so um you know the yankees are still beating teams that they're supposed to beat they went and they swept the a's afterwards you know they're they're beating the pirates right now five nothing after losing five two yesterday but um you know the panic level is because you know at, at this point the Yankees have wrapped up the American League East, so you're kind of looking forward to what's next. So you're going to look at the playoffs and who do you have to beat? We have to beat the Astros. And it was kind of a measuring stick here, and um, the Astros are very good. And I know Alex said he was actually te- petrified of facing the Astros in the playoffs, and I, I can't feel like, uh, as a Yankees fan, you should feel confident in facing the Astros because they've had your number for, like, five years now. That's the dragon you have to slay if you want to get to the World Series. Yeah, it's it's tough. And, you know, as a Mets fan, on top of that, being at the Yankee Astros game with you, I saw them way too much recently. I'm I'm done. I do not want to see them anymore. (laughs) They made it really hard on the Mets in the series in Houston. And then they went to New York to play the Yankees and then played the Mets in New York right after that. I'm done. I'm over it. Jordan Alvarez is a petrifying man. I don't want to see him hit against my team ever again, even though I'm sure we'll have to like. They are a good, good team. At least they really, really look like it, and they're one of the hottest teams in baseball right now. But you're 100% right. The way I look at it for the Yankees is you had the panic button out preseason, right? Because a lot of people were not happy with the Cashman offseason. They thought there could have been more to be done, and you know it felt like a little bit like you're rolling out the same type of squad. However, after two weeks, you, you very calmly take that panic button, and you go put it in its drawer, and you remember where you put it, and you're like, wow. I don't think I need to see this thing for a while. And you know it's there, right? That's that's where you're at right now. You know it's there, but you don't care about it. You're not even thinking about it. On the Mets front, I think the, the where the where we are at with the panic button is that we went back to that drawer and we opened it and looked to make sure it was in there because you panicked that you lost the panic button. Right? That's, that's kind of how I'm feeling right now, right? I'm not taking it out. I'm not putting it on the table. I'm not flipping open the cap like we're in deal or no deal. But I went back to the drawer to make sure it's there. Because uh, the Mets thing here is a little bit reminiscent of years past where all of a sudden the offense just isn't getting the job done. And I, I loved hearing what Francisco Lindor had to say mm-hmm. when he went off in his little soliloquy. Yo, Scherzer and DeGrom can't be the saviors. You know why? Because if we score zero runs, they can't win any games. So unless we hit, unless we score runs, it doesn't matter who's pitching right now. And I just love that mentality because it's taking the blame. It's taking the ownership. And through all the two years, well, not even two years now, of Lindor, uh, a lot of people have been frustrated. I, for one, am always on board and appreciate who he is and who how he's playing right now as well. So that's where I'm at as the Mets. Do you feel similarly? Do you, do you agree? Do you understand why I took a peek in the drawer to make sure it was still there? Oh, absolutely. The, the Braves being two games uh, behind you now. And again, the Mets aren't playing terribly at the moment. I mean, but the Braves, again, they, they haven't cooled down much, if at all. 
Mahomes. But um, like you said, I was going to bring up the Lindor point that, you know, he said he took the he took the ownership of it. He took responsibility, you know, being the one of the leaders of that locker room saying, hey, DeGrom and Scherzer, that's great. That's great that they're coming back. But, you know, we have to do our part as well. The pitching, and I, I've always said that the Mets pitching is going to be fine. And, you know, Peterson, you know, the short start tonight, notwithstanding, I think he's been great. And Bassett's been what you kind of expected for him. And now Scherzer's back and DeGrom's on his uh, you know, rehab assignment now. So he should be back probably around the All-Star break in a couple of weeks. I can't believe it's the All-Star break already. Like, I can't believe it's July. Like, the season's gone by very, very quick, my friend. Um, so it's, it's an appropriate it's an appropriate level of concern right now and it just uh you know the last couple of you know last two weeks have kind of reinforced what we kind of talked about last time out of what the team needs and that team the Mets need offense and they need offense in in spades right now and I think that's going to be the number one trade target going into the deadline yeah and I I looked at it last night after the uh shutout loss and Scherzer's return 0 for 8 runners in scoring position no extra base hits that's the recipe for being a really bad team. Obviously it's exaggerated to one really bad game where they couldn't get off the board at all, but like that's not completely abnormal. It doesn't feel like an anomaly for the Mets to not hit with power on a given night, because we know that the power has been coming from two and a half people more or less this season. Marte has been our best hitter over the past two weeks by a long shot. He's been Mm -hmm. pretty good the entire year with some power, you know, with his extra base hits McNeil, obviously the average is still up there. He's still hitting whatever Pete and Lindor have been the run providers for this team and the power of the extra base hits and all the stuff we talked about last time we had our chat, Andrew about OPS and OPS plus and all that stuff. That is an indicator of uh, maybe not what's going on in the exact current moment, but an indicator of who you are overall as a player. Those things are not too super strong for the Mets, right? After those top two or three guys, they get a little bit more bleak and the, the run production becomes harder and harder to find. So this isn't shocking. So I think there's probably some Mets fans out there who just heard my little take on the panic button being in the drawer, but I checked on it saying that's not enough. I'm panicking. I am actually worried. I got the button out. We need to make a trade right now. We need to bring up Alvarez, the catcher who just got bumped to AAA. Mm-hmm. It, it's time to make something happen. To a fan who has that attitude, what, what do you say? What do you say with the 50 wins, first team in the NL to get there, Max and DeGrom getting healthy, the offense being what the offense is, do you tell that person to calm down or do you think they have a really strong point? I think I think you have to calm down a little bit. And I don't think – I think the worst mistake you can make is bringing up Alvarez before he's ready. And, again, he's he did great in AAA. You, you know, development is development. You can't um, – the worst thing you could do is – change someone's development and change the trajectory if they're not ready and try to put them in a situation where you don't think they might not succeed and you might actually hurt him in the long run by exposing him to major league pitching when he's not ready for it. And I get that, you know, he's the top prospect and I expect him to probably, you know, start be the starting catcher in 2023, but it's just, you know, it's not now. And Maybe if he gets off to a couple, if it gets up to a hot start in Triple A, but I mean, he just got promoted. What, like last, you know, a couple of days ago? So yeah, within he's the got to get some. He's got to get some, you know, time to get you know uh, speed from out from under him and you know build himself up a little bit. And maybe if he has a hard start, maybe you can have that conversation in um, late August or early September. You can have that conversation, but not not now. 
you know, yeah, to, taking that bad taking bad. that jump is not that's not advisable in in my eyes. You, you're going to ruin prospect. You have the the danger of ruining a prospect on top of getting zero offense from uh, from the position. So, um, you, if you're going to go out and get somebody, you go out and get Contreras from the Cubs. Who, who I, you know, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the way. So it's a nice little stopgap. Someone better than James McCann, someone better than Nito. Um, or get some somebody to play third base or somebody to play in the DH spot. So um, there's plenty of plenty of spots where an offensive upgrade can come from. And I fully expect the Mets to, to go out and get that upgrade. Yeah. And as we talk right now, we should definitely mention that they're in extra innings up 5 3 now in the top 10. Nimmo's up. So the offense a little better today is Nimmo hits one deep to right. I'm play, doing play by play on a podcast. That's terrible. Home run. Wow. Okay. There's some power for the Mets. That's live, not so live podcasting because you're hearing this the day after it happened. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Nimmo hits a home run there. Um, I almost I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Dom Smith is where I was going. So yeah. Dom Smith is a guy who comes to mind as like an in-house fix for some of those issues. He's been one of the better hitters. For the Mets over the past week since he got the call back up and uh you know he he's playing well Pete Alonzo was due to come down to earth and then just went four for four or four for five now uh in last night's game so Marte's been on fire and McNeil's still hitting good there is reason to believe hey we need to chill out for a little bit we had a crazy ebb we're in a flow or we're, we had a crazy flow we're in an ebb whatever you want to say and there's reason for us to believe we can get back to a, a more consistent offense so I think the Alvarez thing and the trade thing are separate, as you outlined. Bring it, bring up Alvarez too soon is a mistake. Sending away a prospect for a guy who couldn't possibly help on a championship run is something that I think they're going to look at very closely. A guy like Steve Cohen doesn't look like the type of guy who wants to sit around and wait for something to happen. He's going to try to make something happen. So they're going to be players in, in uh, the trade talks here. I don't know if they're going to go for a Contreras. It doesn't seem like, that is the move when you have this big catching prospect to give someone up for a one-year rental. Like it's a really tough sell, I think. Um, but you know, like Jeff Passon kind of put out in his last uh, piece on ESPN, a guy like Trey Mancini is somebody who mm-hmm. I-, I think is a realistic option to grab. My problem is, I'm still a Dom Smith believer, Andrew. I still believe in this guy that he can be a hitter in the big leagues when he has consistent at bats. Can I? Do, am I crazy for saying that? Can I actually say with the right mind that this guy who has shown only one quarter of a season because it was the COVID year of being a really good MLB hitter that I still have faith in this man? I think it, it, it's it's uh, clock's about to strike midnight soon there, PD, unfortunately for Dom, at least as a Met. Um, I think kind of a very similar with uh, like Clint Frazier on the Yankees. I think it's at this point where if he's not going to get consistent at bats, there's better off. Um you know, he was about, he was going to be part of a trade package to get um, who, who, who's a Hosmer from the Padres and Pack. That trade almost literally almost went through through spring training because uh, it fell through because Paddock's arm was going to fall off and he eventually needed Tommy John surgery. So um, I think he's going to have more value to somebody else if he has much value at all. I think he's got more of a trade piece than a long term piece for the Mets. Unfortunately, I hate to uh, burst your bubble there, sir. I feel bursted a little bit. That's okay. I, I get it. I know it's kind of an irrational confidence thing for me there. It's it's Frank Nilakina adjacent. You know, when Frank Nilakina hits one corner three and gets a steal in like a one-minute stretch, I'm like, see? See? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dom Smith has like four hits in, in like two games. I'm like, 
There it is. That's my guy. I told y'all. I told y'all. But then, then he like doesn't do well for two weeks straight. Uh, it's a little tough sell. I get it's, it. It's Clint Frazier, Gary Sanchez itis, my friend. It's a, it's a tough disease to kick. And we have a fun run every uh, every year to try to beat this horrendous disease. <laughs> and I I have faith in you that you can you'll be able to kick it yourself. So yeah, it's it's tough. And the latest victim to this is uh, Joey Gallo. I think the clock mm. has it's it's yeah. so annoying because the clock has struck midnight for so many Yankee fans. But today, when we choose to do this podcast, he hits a home run, and when he hits a home run, it always feels like he's great for that moment in time. Uh, so let's segue over to the Yankees here for a second. There's no real panic because of how well they're playing and how much of a lead they've given themselves, but there's still room to improve. It, like you've been a little more reasonable on this front than most. Mm. Is it time to rip the Gallo bandaid off? Is it still ridiculous? Uh, you're shaking your head. Yes, but hear me out for a second. Are you going to go for a, a big name? Are the Yankees going to make a move? for a real needle mover here? Or are they going to try to get a marginal guy who's just going to be a replacement level better than Gallo? See, I feel like I, I feel like they'll go out and get another hitter because the, obviously that's what the team needs. And then when you're this good, you can't, I don't think marginal upgrades are, um, you can, you have, you have to stop at that, especially when you have, you know, those, you gave in Joey Gallo, a year's worth of time to get acclimated to New York to be able to put together and be again, no one was asking Joey Gallo to be a 280 hitter and to hit 75 home runs. People were just asking him to just be Joey Gallo, be a two, 215 hitter, get on base a ton and hit, hit a bunch of home runs. But he hasn't, you know, he has nine home runs, 10 home runs now with that home run. Like, and he's batting 167. He, just as you think he's about to come out of his slump, he goes like 0 for 25 and is just striking out and just looking non-competitive and just looking hey, like just credit. like so defeated after like uh, like a bad like a bad at bat. He's just like he's like just get me fucking out of here, man. And I I th- I think Joey Gallo as uh, time as a Yankee is is going to be done. I feel like he's going to go to like San Diego or. Um, a team that willing to to say, okay, get this guy at New York and he'll be, you know, maybe more relaxed in who he wants to, you know, the player he was. So I feel like San Diego is going to be a big spot for him. And I know uh, AJ Preller, the the GM of uh, San Diego drafted him originally and he really likes him. So I feel like that's a good destination. And as far as someone, excuse me, someone who the Yankees will probably go out and get, I, I expect maybe someone like Andrew Benintendi, or Ian Happ of the Cubs, um, someone like that to be able to come in. Maybe both. Why not both at this point and make Aaron Hicks a true yeah. fourth outfielder? Right. Um, because at, at this point, again, you, you have such a great team and you've built up such a lead that, like, you have to address the, the needs in the room. and You can't just kind of sit back and hope guys bounce back. You've given them enough time to, to do that. And whether or not um, – you know, they have the prospect capital and then whether or not uh, Hal Steinbrenner wants to go over the $270 million luxury tax threshold because right now they're at like 262 and whether or not they're going to make similar trades that they made with Rizzo and Gallo last year where they're giving up more prospects and then having the other teams eat all the money. Maybe they'll make more deals like that, but it's soon to be seen. But um, 
they'll they'll they have to make they have to make a major move. I feel like at this point because the offense isn't isn't going to be good enough in the postseason where the best pitching we're up against the best pitching and if Judge and Stanton aren't carrying the lineup, there's not a whole other a lot of components there to you know make you confident saying these guys will get hits when you we need them to the bottom third of the lineup is not great. Uh, Josh Donaldson, despite getting the home run tonight, has been uh, pretty disappointing. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa is not a uh, above-average hitter whatsoever. Neither is, you know, Jose Trevino has a, had a nice first half, and he'll probably make the All-Star game as a as a backup. But um, he's not he's not a guy I feel like um, that can carry a lineup or be able to. You know, he might have the clutch hit component to him. But he's not a guy where you could feel like he's gonna be able to, I don't know, carry a team or be able to get a hit when you really, really need him to. Yeah, for the numbers that he's putting up for a catcher are fantastic to yeah. have. But he's not batting three, four, five for mm-hmm. you, and you're expecting him to do a whole lot all the time, right? Uh, but no, a hundred percent on all of your points there. I think they're very poignant. Um, does that mean on time? Mm-hmm. That was not the right word to say. No, no, poignant is poignant. You use that correctly. Hmm. Poignant doesn't mean on time. Or does it no. mean on point? That means like, uh, uh, poignant is uh, evoking a keen sense of sadness or regret. Oh, so, um, that doesn't seem right. All right, now I'm regretting <laughs> poignant that I brought this up. Oh, whatever, I'm moving on. Uh, Matt Carpenter. And as I'll say that, I will twirl my little mustache here in honor of Matt Carpenter. He's another guy here who now fans are clamoring for to get in the lineup every single day. He's been in the lineup a lot. He's been your best hitter over the last two weeks, which is a little crazy to say out loud, but it's true. Uh, like So it's obvious to say to see what the Yankees have as issues, and I think that's one of the best things you can have is a really clear problem, something that is solvable, and you know what it is. Right. When when it's like somebody's injured and you're kind of waiting for him to come back. Oh, like he'll be back to his normal self in a little while. And then he never makes it back. Right. Like that's the limbo that you don't want to be in. That's the limbo. The Mets pitching staff is was kind of in, even though they've been solid enough. It's really the offense. That's the real struggle. Um, But for for the Yankees, it's just so clear the weak points and you know what you're getting from IKF. So you're not really going to complain about him. Trevino, same concept. But those other points are such upgrade opportunities that you have to go for it because windows championship windows is something we talk about all the time. And I think the biggest mistake that people make in media fans alike is expecting this window to be more open than it is. It's a perfect example from that first year the Yankees made um, the conference, the conference finals, the ALCS. Uh, Everyone's like, oh, well, it's okay. That was way ahead of schedule. They have all these years ahead. Well, those next three years didn't go how everyone expected them to. And now, granted, the windows open back up, probably open now more than it ever was. But if they just sat on their laurels, which some people thought they did a little bit, and just said, oh, we made it to the LCS, we're fine. We're going to grow. We're going to make the championship in one or two years. Then then the window closes, you know? So it's a perfect opportunity where the Yankees know exactly what their weakness is right now, and they have opportunities to make an upgrade. Absolutely. And uh, uh, you could oh, just to go back to the poignancy uh, thing. It could also be something that is uh, deeply touching. Um, so brings brings forth strong emotion, like um, like sympathy. Let me just so, let me just confirm. 
that you didn't listen to anything I just said and you were researching what the word poignant means. No, I, I, I was, I can multitask my friend. I'm a dad. I can do two things at once, Touché. but no, I, I totally agree. And, and again, uh, you know, going into to, to tonight where I saw that like Matt Carpenter was batting third in, in the lineup. And I'm just like, have we really reached that point where <laughs> Matt Carpenter is, is batting third and it's, um, that's who that's what we got in there that's our best that's our best option at the moment that's that screams to me that like yeah and a great matt carpenter you know you kind of need those guys where you expect um you kind of get unexpected production out of some guys and that's what most championship teams have but those, those guys don't bat third no, um no. even <laughs> even against even against like the pirates that's that's uh that's something you don't you don't see or don't you know really kind of want it's kind of the one big differentiation for baseball against basketball and football, for example, or, or even mm-hmm. hockey to a lesser extent because of the more structured lines that they have really in place. But in basketball and football, you have the true ability of like a heat check guy. Mm-hmm. He's not your number one or number two option, but if you see it on the right night and you catch it in motion, it's like, yo, we can ride this guy for a quarter. Oh, we can target this guy nine times today. He has it, you know, mm-hmm. in baseball, it's much more progressive over time and you can't really mess things up too much in the lineup structure because that's the whole entire game. It's a whole entire day. And instead of basketball and football, you obviously just go in and out like Carpenter in the three holes. Crazy. (laughs) It it, it makes sense right now, but it's crazy. And I, I understand your point. It's something that like as a, a Mets fan who watched them first over the Yankees, I've only really seen that peripherally. And then on, uh, on Twitter and occasionally when I caught them past week or two, like he's so important to the entire team though, right now. And, and is that a scary sign though, that a team that's been this good is leaning on a guy who literally was picked up off the fucking scrap heap <laughs> to be aggressive. I don't know why I got so aggressive on that statement. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's kind of crazy too, is that like, you look at the, I don't know, you look at the numbers and he's like, okay, he's, he's uh on base percentage is over like 400 and, you know, he's doing this, that, and the other, but it's also it's just like, it's been, and you know, how many plate appearances? It's been, it's been 60, 65 plate appearances. That's, that's nothing. And in, in, uh, you know, even if, if you're, if you, if a regular player gets 600 plate appearances, if you want to equate that to like a nine inning game, that's like saying you won the game in the first inning. That's 10, you know, that's like less than 10% of like, a player's total at bats for like a season. So, you know, you want to ride the hot hand and yeah, he's technically slugging eight forty eight, which is bonkers, but that's, that's not <laughs> Matt Carpenter didn't turn to Barry Bonds overnight. That's not how this works. That's not how baseball works. Unfortunately, yeah, maybe be Barry Bonds. He was Barry Bonds for that short time period, but the more you play him, the more he's going to get exposed, the more, um, you know, he's going to turn back into the, the guy that was, you know, batting triple A for, for the Texas Rangers. So mm. and yeah, it just it just it just fortifies that the Yankees need more offensive help, much like the Mets do. Yeah. And uh just to wrap this thing up so we can get on to some of our other stuff here. Pitching front, you're still you're still feeling lovely about this pitching staff overall, top to bottom. Any worries, any holes? Um I I think I think I said this last time too that um I think workload has become more of a concern, especially with Nestor Cortez 
Again, his season, uh, his career high innings pitch in the year is 110, 115 innings. And Severino, who was coming back off of Tommy John surgery, again, who's pitched like 19 innings since like 2019. So, like, are you really expecting him to pitch 150 innings this year? I don't know. So maybe getting another starter as well to try to lighten the load. Maybe you don't have to go out and get Luis Castillo to be the number two guy. I feel like that's not, you know, the Yankees have been linked to Castillo forever, but I feel like they'll go out and get someone marginal that they'll be able to eat innings, maybe be able to kind of fix him like they fix all the other pitchers um, and identify some of that. I feel like they're not going to get anybody splashy um, pitching wise if they pick up another reliever or another starter. But, um, you know, the flashiness I feel like is going to be on the offensive side. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that makes sense. It's where they need it more. They're, they're pitching yeah. off the charts. And if you look at their starting uh, five here, it's 93 innings for Cole, 90 Montgomery, 89 Tyone. That doesn't count. He pitched last night, right? The game that's still going on. Mm, was that two nights ago? No, Severino's pitching tonight. So, so, so Severino's innings. Yeah, right. With the stats I'm looking at, yeah. Tyler 89, Cortez 85, Severino after tonight 87, 88, 89, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, that's incredible. Off yeah. the rip, that's off the charts that they've been this healthy. And with Nestor Cortez in particular, but really the entire pitching staff, it, it started off as like, a, oh, okay, like Nestor's not going to be this good. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Everyone heard that. And then it was like, oh, wait, no, he's still really good. 90 innings into his season. And now it's starting to catch up to him a little bit, but he's still battling. He's still doing Nestor stuff. He's still being fine. Yeah. Uh, no, but- no one was expecting him to be an under two ERA pitcher. And I think we talked about this when he was an under like two ERA right. pitcher that like he uh, talk about at the end of the year, he'll probably be in the mid threes, upper threes in terms of ERA. So I feel like he still has a little more regression to go. Um, but he's still a very good pitcher, still someone I expect to be one of the starters come playoff time. But again, I, I really feel like the Yankees at this point really need another innings eater, someone that they could just slot in, um, someone better than JP Sears to be able to give guys a rest and you know absorb some more innings, um, you know, in the rotation just to give just lighten the workload for those other guys so they could be a little more fresh come October. Mm. Yeah, and and it has a good setup for y'all to, to do exactly that. So, yeah. all right, let's wrap up this baseball conversation. Any, any last words here on the Mets or the Yankees on any thoughts in general? Um, you know, we're getting closer to all-star game. I think our, our initial predictions from last episode are still holding up pretty good. Alonzo's going to make it. Lindor should make it. Um, McNeil should, should make it, but you know, you never know. He's going to be a little bit tougher of a sell probably. And mm-hmm. then um, on the Yankees front, obviously judge. And then, you know, Nestor Cole probably probably make it, and who who else? Clay Holmes. Clay Holmes. Oh my God, how do you forget about that moose of a man? Uh, I was, seeing him in person, by the way. Last note here. Mm. Wow, I was blown away watching him in person. I've never oh, seen him okay. in person, and we were we were pretty close. Thank you, Andrew and CBS for the seats. Um, <laughs> I wish they were Subway Sports Talk seats, but we're not there yet. Nope. Uh, we'll get there. Blown away by Clay Holmes. Blown away. Yeah. He's a, a phenomenal pitcher. Uh, again, if Nestor Cortez. Uh, didn't steal all the thunder. Everyone, Clay Holmes would be the the story of baseball for the year right now. Yeah. Um, and just one other last note on the Yankees. I think that you know, Aroldis Chapman coming back. It's been it's been rough. Uh, I think the first time ever in his career that he's walked like three guys, all three batters, and like back to back appearances. So like 
clearly something's still wrong with him. Something clear, he's got 15 strikeouts and 13 walks in 15 innings. Like he's clearly the worst version of himself, and I don't trust him in any kind of high leverage spot. So I don't think he's going to get dealt. Because I feel like if, you know, the off chance that he does able to turn around and be better, that's a valuable weapon out of the pen that the Yankees will certainly need come playoff time. But I don't trust him at all in any kind of high leverage spot. And I hope that uh, the Yankees feel the same way. Yeah, I think every Yankee fan feels the same way. And that's very safe to say. Uh, mm-hmm. People are, are very frustrated and, and fed up with some Chapman stuff here. So we'll see if they send him send him back to the IL and, and try to get him right and, you know, figure it out. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But, uh, Andrew, you'll be back in a little while to talk Marvel and Thor Love and Thunder predictions and review review reactions, not movie reactions. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm going to talk NBA free agency and give you some of my best takes from all that movement, moving and shaking throughout the NBA. So, Andrew, I'll talk to you in a few. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Welcome back to Subway Sports Talk. Pete Kennedy here talking NBA free agency and my five big takeaways for better or worse. What happened in this NBA offseason trades, free agency draft, all that stuff is on the table. Plus a couple honorable mentions at the end. If you're watching this on YouTube. Don't forget to check out our baseball video talking all things Mets and Yankees, as well as our predictions podcast for Thor, Love and Thunder. Find that on our page. Don't forget to subscribe, hit the notifications bell. So, you know, when we drop some new videos, if you're listening to the podcast app, this is smack in the middle of baseball talk with Andrew and Marvel talk with Andrew. For now, let's talk some hoops. So first things first, let me get it out of the way and let's talk about the New York Knicks offseason. It's been the worst kept secret in basketball that Jalen Brunson was likely to sign with the New York Knicks. He did just that. We've known this for a while, but I haven't gotten my takes off on it uh, fully just yet. So let's do it here now. Number one. Jalen Brunson to the Knicks, as well as re-signing Mitchell Robinson. Shout out the Knicks re-signing a draft pick for the first time in a very long time, as well as grabbing Isaiah Hartenstein off free agency, a nice backup center. But on Jalen Brunson, the big conversation was, was it too much money for the Knicks to pay for this guy, who is a very good starting point guard? I think that's fair to say. Not a great starting point guard, but a very good one and one who just played in a conference finals with the Dallas Mavericks. Is it too much money? Perhaps in a vacuum. But unfortunately, when you're talking about free agents here, we're talking about having to pay to go get somebody. Jalen Brunson was not a returning Knicks player. He was coming from another team that would have probably loved to resign him for probably seven to eight, nine million dollars less. The Knicks had to take that free agent sticker price up a little bit to make sure they got their guy as well as some f- funky fugazi stuff with the front office with Leon Rose being very close with Rick Brunson, Jalen Brunson's dad. He was his agent, his first ever client. Rick Brunson was just hired by the Knicks now as a coach to be on the staff. Jalen Brunson's agent is Leon Rose's son, who is one of Leon Rose's son's main players who he represents. So there's a lot of inner section here on what's going on and why he ended up a Nick. But to put that aside here and talk about the money specifically, the fit specifically, and what this means for the Knicks. So the money thing, I kind of just explained a little bit, but just to say one more time, 25 million per year for a guy who will likely never make an all NBA team is a tough pill to swallow, but there are 
14, I'm sorry, 13 other point guards who make more money than him. And in reality, if you think about it, that's probably where he belongs on that list. It doesn't mean he's the best guy, but it definitely doesn't mean he's the worst guy. He was interesting because for the Mavericks, he was not just a floor raiser, but he did raise their ceiling at different points as well. Uh, however, his big contribution to them in my estimation was he was able to help them stay afloat when Luca was hurt, carry an offense and look good doing it, frankly, with high efficiency numbers, with the ability to pass the ball, to get into the lane in a multitude of ways. As a basketball player, I don't think there's a big reason to nitpick this signing for the New York Knicks. If this was a $19 million per year deal, I think everyone would say this is an A++ great signing that Knicks got a relevant point guard. But because the money is what it is, people get very negative and start to point out the negatives in his game and where his ceiling may end up. But when you're building a team and you've been failing to get better consistently for 20 years now and only have had basically two years of truly positive runs where you felt really good about your team, this to me is a no-brainer. Getting Jalen Brunson here is a step in a good direction. Yes, it's too much money. Yes, it ties you up just a touch, but the cap is expected to go up over the next year or two and beyond when this new TV deal kicks in for the NBA. And that will contract will look a lot better when somebody who's just as good, if not a little worse than Jalen Brunson, ends up with a four-year, $32 million deal per year, right? So that whole narrative around his money being too high doesn't tell enough of the story for me. I get it that it's frustrating. We had to pay so much for a guy who's a borderline all-star at best, never going to make an all-NBA team. But when he's going to be the steadying force on an offense that has struggled for basically two years in a row now, who can score and get others involved, we're going to be happy we have him. He's also been durable to this point in his career. He has a, a strong frame for a smaller point guard who can play some defense. All these things are huge benefits for the Knicks on the court. So yeah, I understand the money's high and it hurts. But in reality, when you need to just get better as a team, when you need to not just have a fluky four seed and then fall out of the playoffs, when you want to be consistent, you need to add players like this. And more often than not in the NBA, adding players like this comes at a price, especially when they're not on your team currently. As we've seen across the league with some other stuff we'll talk about in a minute here, sometimes in those trades you throw a couple extra picks you didn't want to or that one young piece you didn't want to get rid of, but you had to get that guy because you had to get better. You had to look at the big picture. That's exactly what the Knicks had to do here. And when Jalen Brunson is playing point guard for the Knicks this upcoming season and him and R.J. Barrett are two young guard wing type players who can score at multiple levels, who can run the offense a little bit, we're going to feel a lot better about this situation than just praying that Derrick Rose can play 60 games. So on the Brunson front, I am pro this signing. Despite his ceiling being there, despite the number being high, this is a move that makes them better instantly and could make them better in the long haul when cap flexibility opens up elsewhere and somebody wants to come play with Jalen Brunson and RJ Barrett rather than coming to play with Emmanuel quickly, who is not as good and is not the creator that Jalen Brunson is. So it's a step in the right direction, even if the number is a little higher than you want on to my next thing. It has to be the Rudy Gobert trade. I mean, listen, this trade is crazy. 
It's crazy. If you look at, if you just look at on NBA.com, the actual list of what went down in this trade, I'm going to pull it up for you guys on the YouTube page here too. It's nuts. Okay. And now everybody's out here dumping all over uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves for giving up all these picks, throwing in pick swaps, throwing in more stuff than they really probably wanted to, but they felt like they had to. There's a couple of reasons why this had to happen. Similarly to the Jalen Brunson thing with paying a little bit higher price when you don't have this guy yet, you got to do it. So in this trade, you can see Malik Beasley, Patrick Beverly, Leandro Bolmero, Walker Kessler, the 22nd pick, Jared Vanderbilt all went out to Utah. Also, 2023 unprotected, 2025 unprotected, 2027 unprotected, a 2026 pick swap, and a 2029 protected first-round pick. It is a mouthful. They only got Rudy Gobert for all that stuff. Here's my question. What was the other path for the Timberwolves becoming a true top four seed in the Western Conference? What you will say as I ask that question is they need to hit on draft picks, right? But just last year, they proved that they're now, they're not a top lottery team anymore. And with Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards and the infrastructure that they were building with Finch as their coach, they're probably a play-in team at worst, right? So those picks are slightly less valuable. And now if Rudy Gobert does what Rudy Gobert has done for most of his career, which is be an incredible floor raiser throughout the regular season, this team is going to be probably at its peak in the next two years. And that's scary. It's exciting and scary at the same time because as Timberwolves fans are watching them throughout the season, you're probably going to feel pretty good about who you're running out on the floor. But what happens next? That's the scary part because the options become thinner and thinner when you're paying Rudy Gobert three years down the road over $45 million, right? That is a scary proposition to have. But same like I talked about with the Knicks, there is a Minnesota Timberwolves side of the story here as well. They don't get anybody. They only get draft picks. They only get to pick number one, two, or three when they're terrible, which has been most of the time, right? So now you have a bona fide star who people expect to keep growing in Anthony Edwards and be one of the dudes in this league. You have Carl Anthony Towns who's a multiple-time All-NBA center, an elite, elite offensive player who can space the floor better than any big in the entire league playing against the big in the league who can space the floor the worst in Rudy Gobert. So it's a good fit there. This team should be a playoff team this upcoming season, not a play-in team, a playoff team. And when you're the Minnesota Timberwolves, that might be enough of a price to pay to get somebody who can make an all-NBA team on your roster. The playoff struggles are well-noted. The limitations of Rudy Gobert are talked about at nauseum. The personality of Rudy Gobert is talked about a good deal and not in a positive manner. But this guy was willing to go there. This guy was willing to stay there. Not that he had that much of a choice, but he was, and he is. And there's a realm of possibility where the Timberwolves take this one running and actually are a competitive team in the Western Conference that's going to be very good next year. Are they a top four seed next year? I don't think so. But I do think they're in that seven, I'm sorry, five through seven, eight range, which is a upgrade from where they've been 
for basically most of their history. So all in all, they gave up too much. All those unprotected picks is going to bite them in the ass at some point. And if they don't, the pick swap will. Something will happen where those picks hurt. And Utah has a pick they really need or really want. But when you're the Timberwolves, you got to get better. You got to get stars. And I don't know if he's that dude, Rudy Gobert. He's probably not. But this is a guy that they will not get otherwise. And if you said to them, oh, next year you're picking 12, you pick a guy like Rudy Gobert, that's an absolute win. Next year you're picking seven, you get a guy like Rudy Gobert, absolute win, right? They'll have the picks in the off years. They gave up a bunch. But right now for the Timberwolves being a relevant franchise, this move is not quite as bad as people are making it out to seem. On to my third take of the NBA offseason free agency fiasco stuff that's been going on. I'm talking about Zion Williamson, who signs the full max with the Pelicans to stay there. This one feels like a cop-out. It feels too easy. But let me just tell you this. If you're the Pelicans, you got to do this every single time, twice on Sunday, the whole nine. If Zion is on your team and wants to commit, you do so, right? Because when he plays, he's freaking awesome. He hasn't done it much yet. But when he does, he's freaking awesome. And this team has shown some friskiness ever since getting CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram taking over. They don't have a bad team. And if Zion could actually play, there's an argument for this team to be in that five through nine range, just like Minnesota. And that's not the be all end all. That's not the goal for every single person, for every single franchise. However, for New Orleans, you do it 10 times out of 10. You need Zion. You go for it. And guess what? If Zion shows he can be healthy and then all of a sudden he wants out, fantastic. When he's healthy, his trade value is going to be through the roof because right now his trade value is at an all-time low. So if you're one of these people who are going out here saying you should trade him, don't sign him to the extension, sign and trade, get rid of him, get what you can now. You ain't getting what you need to on a Zion trade right now. But if he can come back and play, his trade value skyrockets. And if he plays on your team, your team's value skyrockets. This is a franchise that would legitimately be possibly moved out of New Orleans if Zion left, if Zion didn't sign the extension, if they let him walk for nothing, if they traded a crappy package for him. See you later, New Orleans. You go into Seattle. Right? Like that's a real possibility for a franchise like this. And that's why the Zion extension is a no brainer. You do it 12 times out of 10. All right. On to my next NBA take number four here. It's a combo action. And it's two teams that kind of just don't really do it exactly the same. And it's been working out in opposite ways. The Warriors and the Portland Trailblazers have franchise cornerstones. Steph Curry, Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard has been fantastic in his career. He has been one of the best players in the league since he's been in the league. Fair to say. All NBAs. Took him a while to finally crack the all-star consistency, but whatever. We got there. Big shots, big moments. Loved by the entire city. Loved by the entire league in general. But they go out and they trade for Jeremy Grant. They go out and they sign Gary Payton the second. They go out and <clears throat> they get 
Anthony Simons to a big time $100 million extension. They retain Yusuf Nurkic. On the other hand, the Warriors, they let Gary Payton II walk. And they sign in Dante DiVincenzo. And they have young guys waiting in the wings like Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga. And I don't know if it all comes back to Steph versus Dame or this front office versus that front office, this market versus that market. But these are two teams with not completely different setups. And they've handled it differently. Portland has been getting their guys, or so they thought, and holding on to them. They finally traded CJ last last year to tank it up and get that pick, which ended up to be Shaden Sharp, a high-risk pick who can turn out to be a high reward. Whereas Golden State has created an infrastructure where they develop players as good as anybody in the league. They find players to fit roles better than anyone in the league, and they really let people fly and flourish in those roles. It's sad to see Gary Payton leave Golden State, but to pay him ten, nearly $10 million per year for Golden State is something that truly is tough to sell. He's a limited offensive player. His energy was off the charts. I'm going to miss watching him with Golden State. But when you have Moses Moody, you have John the Kaminga, you get Dante Givincenzo, you retain Kevon Looney, that's something that makes more sense holistically. Whereas you're in Portland and you kind of know what it looks like to have Anthony Simons, Dame Lillard, and Yusuf Nurkic, where you can't really play any defense. And unless the offense is clicking on all cylinders and no one's been healthy for the past two years for them, what's what's the end goal? Is the end goal for Portland just to ride it out with Dame Lillard and you know, give him his best shot possible. Maybe he makes a couple more second rounds. Again, maybe that is the case. And it's an unfortunate case for a player in a franchise that has been loved by many over the past 10 years and throughout Damian Lillard's tenure. But when you have the infrastructure the Golden State Warriors have, you have the confidence then to turn down one of those returning players, to say, we love you, but we have to say goodbye because we have other options to fill your role. We can't overpay you. We can't do it. We won't allow ourselves to do it. And it's a thing that good franchises do consistently and bad franchises mess up consistently. If you think about all the LeBron James teams, they haven't been the most well-run because they're giving these contracts to, to buddies, to clutch clients, to old players who don't deserve it. And I'm not saying Gary Payton doesn't deserve what he got because he pretty much does. He did really well last year for the championship Golden State Warriors. But when you can replace him, you can't overpay for him. That's what the Golden State Warriors did. It's not exactly what the Portland Trailblazers do. I love Anthony Simons as a scorer, as an option on offense. I do. I don't see a path for this team to be in a spot to be truly successful again. I see them in the same realm as the Timberwolves. I see them in the same realm uh, as, um, oh my gosh, I'm, for, uh, I'm forgetting who I was just talking about now. Whatever. The Timberwolves, you get it. You get the point. You get you get what I'm saying here. So that's that's the dichotomy there between the Warriors and the Blazers and how a good team continues to run good and a team that struggle continues to make struggle decisions. And that's tough because I love Dame. I love the Blazers. And I see them as a playing team again. All right. Lastly, on my fifth take here, I want to talk about DeJounte Murray to the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Hawks with the big-time trade. Not quite as big-time as uh, perhaps the 
the Rudy Gobert Jazz trade, uh, Jazz Timberwolves trade here, but a big one nonetheless. You get DeJounte Murray to Atlanta for a number of pieces here. Um, you get Danilo Gallinari, who goes to the Spurs and then gets moved again to Boston. You get a first-round pick in 2023, a first-round pick in 25, pick in 27, as well as a pick swap in 26. So another big haul of picks here for the Spurs. Who knows if they're going full tank. It makes sense if they would. But let's talk about the Hawks here. DeJounte Murray is the perfect guard fit next to Trey Young. It's perfection. If, and here's the big if, if the coach is empowered and DeJounte is empowered to be what they need to be for the betterment of the team, for the betterment of the team, not for the betterment of Trey Young and his all-star selections and his hopeful All-NBA selections and his numbers and et cetera. Because if this team is going to win and play at the level we expected them to last year and then fell short completely, they need to be different. They need to be multiple. They can't be a one-trick pony where Trey Young is running 92 pick and rolls a game. It's not sustainable. It's never been successful, especially with the guard of his stature. And by stature, I mean his actual size. I don't mean his talent because he's talented as hell. He has to give it up more. He has to share the wealth. And if he's going to look at DeJounte Murray and say, no, I'm still going to do it all myself on offense, this is going to be a bad trade for Atlanta. But if the coaching staff and DeJounte are empowered to be a true 1B playmaker for this team, get Trey Young off the ball, catching and shooting, get him cutting, get him running off screens, this is a win. I mean, I've said this 10 times on this podcast, probably more. Trey Young is compared to Steph Curry all the time because of the shooting range, because of the quick trigger, because of all that stuff that we saw. Even some of the passing that he does is impressive. It's it's just as impressive of what Steph can do as a passer. But we should not compare Trey Young to Steph Curry until he learns how to be a team offensive player and a team defensive player, for that matter, like Steph does. And now I'm not expecting him to turn into him overnight. But this has to be a step in the right direction. This has to be a way for Trey to finally see, okay, we are at our best when I get to do me a bunch and then also help off offensively and just relieve pressure for other players on my team to create. It's the true way to success. Think about the teams who are in the NBA finals and who are in even the conference finals for that matter. You have the Mavericks who are the lesser of the bunch. Luka is one of the exceptions of somebody who can do almost everything by himself. And even he needed Jalen Brunson to be a dude to make the conference finals. He needed Jalen Brunson to pick up the weight when he was hurt. And in reality, they're going to be at their best when Luka can be that dude most of the time and then also play off the ball, also catch and shoot and allow other guys to cook and make their teammates better. It is truly the way to win basketball games, right? You think about the Milwaukee Bucks. Why did they lose? Because their 1B was not playing. Chris Middleton was not available for them in that Celtics series. And if he was, we can be looking at a completely different NBA playoffs right here. Giannis is amazing. He's a number one, two, or three player in the NBA. And he cannot do it alone. He cannot close out games consistently without a Chris Middleton. He cannot carry his team's offense enough consistently without Chris Middleton in the biggest moments. 
Same thing goes for Miami. Jimmy Butler was a man possessed in a bunch of those games against Boston in the conference finals. Guess what? Tyler Hero wasn't doing it. Eh, their offense looked bad. Bam Adebayo looked a little bit not quite ready for the offensive spotlight. It wasn't there. Butler needed another dude. And on Boston's front, when did we think they were at their best? When Smart was being a good point guard, when Brown was scoring, and Jason Tatum was Jason Tatum. But this idea of Tatum being a 30-shot game guy who's taking ISO step backs and uh, post-up fadeaways consistently all the time exclusively, it's not their peak. And obviously, I just talked about Steph Curry and the Warriors. Same thing goes for them. Steph Curry is the most selfless player in the NBA. Watch this man come up the court. He has a chance to get into a pick and roll right away and probably make a much more uh, easier way to get to 25 points a game for himself if he took more of those opportunities. But consistently, he gives it up and runs around, gets off screens. It creates lanes for other people constantly. You know, we talk about screen assist with Rudy Gobert all the time. I don't know the numbers on this, but when I watch the Warriors, I see Steph Curry, he's getting screened, right? Like someone's screening for him, but he's actually getting the screen assist because it's a back cut for Clay. It's a back t- uh, cut for GP2. It's a back cut for Andrew Wiggins. Those things have to be done by Trey Young. If they're not, they'll never reach their peak. So many people say Steph Curry ruined the NBA for the shooting and kids these days, they're going out there, they're just chucking up threes. That may be true, but I ain't blaming Steph Curry because anybody who says that he ruined the game, anybody who says, oh, I shoot threes because that's what Steph Curry does, they ain't watching him close enough because he's the most cerebral player at his position. He is the a great passer. He's the best shooter. He's a good finisher inside. He's an amazing free throw shooter. He's a great teammate. So if you say, oh, the NBA's ruined because Steph shot too many threes. Well, the NBA ruined itself. They played themselves because if they were watching more closely, there'd be a lot more running off screens, a lot, a lot more passing, a lot more sharing the sugar and spreading the wealth than just jacking up nine threes a game. That's what Steph Curry does. That's what Trey Young needs to do. So those are my five takes. I got some honorable mentions for you, though. I do love what the Sixers are doing here. The Sixers bring in P.J. Tucker, toughness. I know the deal is a little tough, but guess what? The window's open here for Philadelphia for one, two more years maybe right now, how they're constituted right now. You got to go for it. You got to send it. Anthony Melt, another great signing for the Sixers. I know the Harden stuff is very sticky right now. It's very tricky, but I like what they're doing in general to give support to Harden and Maxi and Embiid, and Melton's a good player. Um, and P.J. Tucker will play a great role with them. He's obviously familiar with James Harden. Him going there must show that he has some sort of respect for James Harden still as other people lose their respect. I like what the Sixers are doing. Uh, On to the Suns. Don't love as much what the Suns are doing. We're talking about championship windows here, and I got to be honest, I, I was nervous about this championship window last year, and I am more nervous about it now because, yes, they were the number one team in the NBA last year, undoubtedly they got banged up. They got beat in the playoffs. Where did they go from there is the question. How did they get back to being the number one team in the West again, as the Clippers get healthier, as the Warriors stay the Warriors, as the Nuggets get healthier, as all these teams get better and grow, have the Suns done the same? Damian Lee, Bismack Biombo, Josh Akoji. 
that's the signings for the uh, Phoenix Suns this offseason. That's it. And DeAndre Ayton ain't coming back. Perhaps, maybe he will. We'll see what happens. JaVale McGee ain't coming back. He's off to Dallas. Where's this window at right now? Is it this much open? Is it just hanging on by the thread of Chris Paul's shoulder, hamstring, wrist, thumb, and whatever the hell else he's hurt over the past couple of years? Is it is it hanging open at all? Can you fathom the Suns getting to the NBA Finals? I think this is a situation that can go sour much faster than people want to think it can because we had this great feeling about them last year. They were awesome. They were the favorites for a reason. They fell short for reasons, whatever. Now, if this goes bad with Chris Paul and his health doesn't stay true, this can get bad quick. This can become a team that's fighting for their play in lives sooner than later. Right now, I still, I still think they're expected to be a playoff team this year upcoming, but you get a Chris Paul injury, you get no DeAndre Ayton back, you get an inconsistent offensive Mikel Bridges, and Devin Booker's on an island again. And they may have broken through from being a, a, a bottom-tier team in the West 100%. They're obviously not looking back to that right now. But if the Chris Paul thing don't work out over the next two years, and Devin Booker's on an island, getting no respect again because his teams lose him. Whew, this can be ugly in Phoenix before we know it. On to one or two last honorable mentions here. Malcolm Brogdon traded to the Boston Celtics as a basketball fit. I freaking love this. Malcolm Brogdon's a great player. Would have loved to have him on the Knicks in a certain world, uh, where that oh, the world where I don't want him is probably the one we're currently in, though, unfortunately, because of the injuries, because he's played less and less games every year since his rookie year. But when he's playing, he's a really good player, man. He's 20 points, 19 points. He's a bunch of assists. He's rebounds. He's free throws. He's the whole package as a point guard. On the court, this is a home run for the Boston Celtics who need more ball handling, who need more people who can attack the rim. And boy, can he shoot off the catch. Right, So Tatum's cooking, Brown's cooking, Smart's cooking, whoever's cooking for the – Derek White's cooking, whoever's cooking for the Celtics, Horford. Right, You found Malcolm Brockton in the corner. You love that shot. You love your chances right there. Can he stay healthy is the only question there. As a basketball fit, it's a no-brainer, a risk the Celtics were willing to take, and I totally get why they would do it for a pretty low price nonetheless. And lastly, my last honorable mention, uh, Bruce Brown. All you Nets fans out there, you know Bruce Brown pretty damn well. Good cutter, good short roll man, great energy guy, hits the boards a little short, even though he's basically a center power forward. I don't know what the hell position he is, but guess what he's going to do? Catch many passes from Nikola Jokic in the corner, in the low post, in the middle of the court where he gets easy layups because he's playing with the best passer in the NBA. So Bruce Brown, more minor, but just a little shout out there as the Denver Nuggets get healthy, hopefully with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., and the two-time rating MVP. I think this team has some juice this year. I cannot wait to watch them, and this little signing for them um, with Bruce Brown just feels really good because they need people to play off Jokic, and Bruce Brown knows his role. He knows what he's supposed to do. It's catch passes, finish, play hard, rebound, play defense. That's it, and that's what he'll do for Denver. So that's all I got. A little bit longer than I wanted to, but that's a okay. That tends to happen around here. If you're on the podcast, stay tuned for some Marvel talk. Thor, Love, and Thunder predictions. If you're on YouTube, click over to our other videos talking about baseball or Marvel. It's great stuff. It's a great time to be alive. Great time to be a sports fan. As always, thank you for listening. Stay tuned.
Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Welcome back to Subway Sports Talk. We are off the rails. Here to talk about Marvel's latest release coming out just any moment now when you're listening to this might be out already about Thor, Love, and Thunder joining me to talk about it. Andrew Klanya, back from the baseball talk to talk Marvel. Here, let's, let's do it. I gave you such a pointed intro there that you can't even go off a tangent and say you want to talk about the Rangers signing Malkin or something like that. Is that a thing? No, well, they they uh, filled up enough cap space to to re-sign uh, Kako, so Kako's oh. uh, back, uh, so they'll be able to keep the kid line intact with Cheeto, Kako, and Lafreniere. Very excited, kid line baby. I'm I'm here for the kid line. That's all I'm here for about the Rangers. But I'm here for Marvel releases, the reviews, Thor: Love and Thunder, the whole nine. This is off the rails. If you if you haven't figured it out, that's when we talk about non sports stuff. Subway Sports Talk off the rails. There it is. Anyway, so Do you and- get it. If you don't get it, now you get it. This film is anticipated, I'd say, less than Doctor Strange because we got Doctor Strange. It was like the first big one from Spider-Man. Spider-Man kind of lived in its own thing. It was huge. It was, everyone loved it, the whole nine. Strange was like, oh, this is the big one. All the new stuff's coming. We're going to know, know the multiverse now. We're going to know this. We're going to know that. And we didn't get a lot of the big picture MCU stuff that we were all hoping for. However, I think the film holds up better with time as a solo film than people want to give it credit for. And I think some people have come around on that. All right. It was a cool movie. Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi, the hell out of it. It was fun. It didn't give us all we wanted. Uh, so people probably ended up now a couple weeks removed, a couple months removed somewhere in the middle. Thor with Taika Waititi at the helm, a lot of the cast and Natalie Portman returning for this film. People are excited, rightfully so. The Guardians of the Galaxy are in the first act, at least at minimum. And it, there's a lot to be excited for. With Taika Waititi at the helm, you expect funny, you expect different, eccentric, something with heart, and I I don't know. So I'm reading the reviews here, Andrew, and I'm seeing that it is funny, there is heart, it looks pretty cool, but it's also getting reviewed poorly at the same time. So I'm going to go through a couple of reviews here quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing from each person, but a couple of reviews here, and then you can kind of react to your reactions of the reviews and et cetera. So on Rotten Tomatoes right now, it's at a 70% just critic review, obviously, because no regular person has seen it yet. But Sarah Michelle Fetters from moviefreak.com said, Thor Love and Thunder is my least favorite film in the MCU. Hard to believe. (laughs) Hard stop. I'll I'll keep reading. Love and Thunder is such a hasty feeling mess of a movie. It might get the viewers to come around to Gore's bloodthirsty perspective. David Sims, The Atlantic. That's a bad review. Uh, In his eyes, he gave a bad score. That doesn't sound that bad to me. Uh, if you're going to fall in love with the villain, I think some of the best MCU movies uh, ever have made you love the villain. Loki, Thanos, etc. So, okay. Black Panther. Black Panther. Here's a good one. Love and, this is a good review from Caroline Seed, Fox 10 Phoenix. Love and Thunder isn't the same kind of comedic crowd pleaser as Ragnarok, but for those who want just a touch more heft back in the Thor franchise, it's a worthy installment. Another person, Danny Lee, flawless self-awareness, teasing the deja vu of comic book movies without ever insulting the audience. This is Watiti's secret sauce. So you're catching a lot of different ideas here. That was Danny Lee, Financial Times. Um, a lot of different v- views, a lot of different things being rated poorly or good. They don't sound that different to me. So I'm going to mm. preface to you, in this age of the MCU, is this something we have to expect for, I'd say, 80 to 90% of releases? 
where it's going to be a mishmash of feelings, some good, some bad, probably not as different as the rating number on the actual review. Cause that's what it feels like where someone says it's terrible. Someone says it's great. It's probably good. Is that okay? Is that okay to say in 2022, Andrew, how do you feel about the review season heading into Thor love and thunder? Well, if, just to touch on the uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score. So you said it got a 70. Do you know what uh, Thor The Dark World got on Rotten Tomatoes? 32? 68. Okay, okay. Wow, so, really? Yeah, so that's slightly. Terrible. Slightly, yeah, and, and that's the worst MCU film. So it got slightly better uh, Rotten Tomato score than the worst MCU film. Uh, in most people's opinion. So um, take that. Is that that eight combined or is that audience? No, that's just the, that's just the critic review score. Okay. So, so take that, uh, take that however you want to, however you want to take it. And as far as like the reviews go, I just feel like that we've kind of hit the fit. We've, I know we've been talking about hitting Marvel fatigue for like years now, but now, especially with, movie when i you know it's kind of a product of covid to be honest with you when we weren't seeing movies and um you know they've kind of had to push everything so everything was going to kind of going bam 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 um and releasing one after the other so you had um dr strange and then miss marvel and now you have thor love and thunder and then you're gonna have she hope and then you're gonna have black panther it's one after another after another and i feel like you've a, you've hit a little bit of fatigue, and uh, B, just because um, you know we haven't really gotten uh, who the next big bad is. You know, they've given hints, they've kind of tried to put pieces on the table, but we haven't got any kind of concrete answer on what kind of direction you know the next major phase of the MCU is going to be. People are kind of just, I, I guess, kind of frustrated with. Um, these kind of standalone stories so um you know and i and i and if i'm going to be completely honest i kind of am too like i'm i'm a, i enjoy dr strange um you know i walked away a little more you know a little more disappointed because again it kind of set up the, the multiverse and whether or not it was gonna you know maybe actually bring the x-men into the proper mcu and you know you kind of have to check your expectations at the door with a lot of these films, but I feel like they were, when you call something the multiverse of madness, it, you know, it's hard to do that at the same time. And I always try to, you know, myself, it's kind of how the star Wars sequel trilogy got ruined for me. I brought too many of my expectations into the theater and not be open to whatever stories the storytellers actually want to tell. And that kind of ruined Star Wars, the, at least the sequel trilogy for me. And I don't want it to ruin Marvel for me um, as well. So I, I take the, I feel like the critics are just as, as kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say fed up, but, you know, kind of disappointed in, you know, this kind of just seems like another one-off story, you know, whether or not I feel like it's still going to be good because, you know, name a bad Christian Bale movie outside of like ter- that Terminator movie. Like Christian yeah. Bale hasn't done a bad movie. Not so bad I feel like, either. yeah. So I feel like he's going to, he's going to be great in it. I feel like he's going to be, uh, live up to the, the Marvel villain name that, uh, you know, that people seem to love the, the charismatic villains. I feel like he's going to be great in it. And again, I'm, I am probably the, one of the least, uh, the, 
I don't, I don't, th- I don't like Chris Hemsworth. Um, I don't <laughs> like his comedy. I really, I really don't. Uh, Ghost- <laughs> Tell me, Ghost- he's really real. No, uh, Ghostbusters 2016 ruined it for me. Him, just, like he, he, his brand of comedy is like I'm very handsome, so I'm gonna act like I'm stupid. And that's it's a one note comedy for for Chris Hemsworth. And I get it. You're very handsome. You're in shape. You're you're Australian. You get paid to work out. Then you're gonna act dumb. And it's it I it doesn't hold up for me. But um, I, I I don't even know where I'm going with this. Hey, I, just don't, I, just don't, I just don't like Chris Hemsworth. OK, I just don't. Uh, but I think I feel like Natalie Portman coming back is a, is a big plus. And I feel like um, Christian Bale is going to be a big, uh, big part of the movie. And I'm excited to see some of the Gardens Galaxy back, too. So, again, I feel like, again, middle of the road Marvel movie. But I feel like that's what most of uh, outside of Spider-Man of what it's been, you know, post Endgame. And people just kind of want to see that next kind of build up to that Endgame type of type of movie after we get that, you know. I know I understand that you have to build up to it, but I feel like you're have, you're not building up to everything. The frustrations are coming out for the fans, and it's coming out. I feel like in the critics as well. Yeah, it's it's a very fair point, and that's what I wanted to, to kind of tackle before we go into predictions. Mm-hmm. The post end game MCU is a very difficult thing to navigate because it, it is a mixture of people loving everything to a fault, and some people criticizing everything to a fault. Where some stuff deserves more love, and some stuff deserves some criticism. So I I totally get that. That overarching point i just asked the question of like where in the last phase did we know we were getting infinity wars and endgame to that extent like when we were four movies before endgame were we fully aware of what was coming were we fully aware when it was just ant-man right when ant-man came out the first one great movie everyone's like oh this is hilarious a new style of superhero movie we love it it didn't have anything to do with anything yet it wasn't until the Ant-Man and the Wasp, which wasn't as good as the first one. It was still good. I liked it. Uh, the Where it became more important with the quantum realm and all that crap, which then became a huge part of Endgame. But I, I, I will say that at the end of the first Avengers movie, that's when you saw Thanos. That's when you right. know who Thanos was. There's there's some big bad guy out there that wants to fight the Avengers for some reason. And you kind of got more stories as the Guardians of the Galaxy came out and... Stuff like that, but I feel like you yeah, knew Infinity Stones. Stones and stuff were a big deal very early on in the MCU, and it took them 27, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 movies to, to get to the end. But again, um, I just don't feel like the that we're just meandering along. And again, I enjoy the character studies, and I enjoy, and I feel like this feels like um, more of a character study on Thor. Mm-hmm. And, again, and the other guy, and the other characters too. Yeah, yeah. And again, he's an he's an original Avenger. He's one of the only original Avengers, the only original Avenger left of the Hulk too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you and know, he lost it. He lost his in Hawkeye. Well, because shit about Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he lost his brother that he knows of. He lost his planet. He lost his parents. So, like, I feel like there's a, I feel like they're gonna lean into you know. That maybe the comedic side of you know like of, of tragedy and of loss, so it's going to be more of a character study on on Thor than um, than anything else. And obviously, that Natalie Portman's going to come back. That that creates a, a a different dynamic and hopefully something better than the last time we saw them together in uh, in Thor: Dark World. So there's that as well. Yeah, and and I think when I'm hearing you give your criticism and 
you know, kind of leading into this movie, I think some of those things can be answered here in this new mm-hmm. film where it will be a deeper dive on Thor, the person and his purpose. It's all in the trailer, right? Like what's his yeah. purpose? Is he still going to be a warrior? Is he still a king? He's not right now. Val- Valkyrie is. Is he the leader of Asgard or new Asgard? The, all those things give them the opportunity to go deeper into the person. How deep they get is the question. And one of the reviewers who I like, I mean, he does amazing, amazing stuff on, on new rock stars, Eric Voss. He gave his non-spoiler review uh, on their YouTube page and he reviewed it positively. But the negatives he said was there were all these deep moments where it was so quick from deep sadness, agony to like the next punchline to the next ridiculous thing. That's kind of Taika's MO in a way. Right. And it's why we love so many of his films and his shows but in this case where we want to see the deeper side of Thor and, and um, uh, Jane Foster and Valkyrie, et cetera, you know, maybe you want some slower beats to really feel the agony and feel why they are the way they are. You know, I haven't seen the movie, so we are, we're just going to guess at this point of how deep they get there. But that feels like an opportunity for me. I don't expect this to be a huge Huge opener for the Marvel universe. I mean, maybe we get a great post uh, post credit scene, which people are doing a great job of keeping those spoilers away from the internet, which is very nice. And mm. that could be the next lead to something bigger, something more special. Um, but again, I don't know. After the post credit scenes for Doctor Strange, we got the Clea thing breaking into the the dark realm, perhaps um, with with the knife at the end there. Like that was something. We don't really yeah. know what it's going to be something, but we don't know when. So that's the tough part. And we got all this great content out and there's probably a lot of people out there who weren't watching movie after movie after movie, right? Like maybe they saw Captain America, Iron Man, the first Avengers and Ant-Man and they missed every other one. And then they caught up and they saw civil war and they saw winter soldier and they saw all these other movies that were some of the most successful in the MCU and they loved it compact, right? But over time, if you're in it from day one, it's a much slower grind. And we're in that right now. We're in the slow grind. It's almost like a complete restart in a lot of ways, despite there being some characters we're already familiar with. So I think that's where I give them a little bit of time and a little bit of patience. Um, but I understand why people want more. I want more. I'm eating this shit up. All right, we're here talking yeah. about it on Subway Sports Talk. So it's a really hard line to kind of to walk across uh, for them. And it's so big that they have the captive audience. These movies are still making a crap ton of money, whether or not, you know, it's the best Dr. Strange movie we could have gotten or not. They're still successful. So do you think, and then we'll go into predictions. Do you think that the MCU and Marvel has gotten a little too big, too ambitious for its own good or over the whole, you know, next three years or whatever, do you still have the utmost faith in Kevin Feige and the Marvel people to deliver that arc and deliver the top tier movies that we uh, have grown to love. I don't think they've gotten more ambitious. Um, I think they're that I feel like they plan things out to a T and I feel, and then the other side of the coin of um, there being so much content. Um, I feel like people don't, you know, I'm excited for the movie. I feel like people don't actually need to see this movie to kind of get the bigger picture to try to understand going for again. These are all one. They all, these all seem like one-off stories. So I feel like the Marvel kind of formula now is that you kind of get to pick and choose 
what you want to see and then eventually you'll get caught up in you know the big movie will catch everybody up and kind of bring everything together i feel like the you can't expect the audience now that you have so many movies together that you you kind of you know the hardcore fans are always going to go and and see everything every, every single night again i'm not in and not so enthused about this movie yet i'm seeing it Friday night opening, you know, opening night. So, you know, I'm, I'm a mark uh, in that way. So, but I think at the same time, at the non-hardcore fan, the casual fans, you know, they see Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman and Christian Bale. Like, okay, we're going to go see this because those are great actors. And, um, you know, it seems like a compelling story, but people, if you haven't seen, if you didn't watch Miss Marvel, or did you see Dr. Strange? I feel like people aren't going to be able, they'll be able to just pick up, you know, and, and watch the movie. And I feel like that has something good going for it right now. And I feel that, like that's something that they're going to have to possibly keep doing moving forward. That's a good point. And it kind of plays both sides of the line again, yeah. right? Like, it, Who's it really going to? Is it maybe not Marvel getting too big for its own good, but Marvel fandom is getting too big for its own good. When, you know, I'm watching Miss Marvel episode five. What's today? Wednesday. I'm going to watch it tonight. Uh, maybe not tonight because it's already late, but like I'm going to watch it and then I'm going to go watch an Easter egg video where I learn, you know, 28 things that I didn't know happened because I, I don't have enough eyes to watch every single yeah. frame. Right. So I'm not the fan that they care about right now with Thor, with Dr. Strange, because there's other people out there who I envy in some ways, because they don't go in with this crazy expectation. They don't go in having nine theories in their head about what could, should or we want to happen. That's yep. a, a beautiful thing. I actually went to see Dr. Strange with a kid who I envy his Marvel fandom because he doesn't even watch trailers. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that's a crazy thing. But if you think about it, like he went into Dr. Strange and when he saw professor Xavier, he was floored. He was hyped. He was like, yo, professor X. And I'm sitting in front of him. I'm like, bro, you, this. you ain't, you ain't known that. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've gotten 19 theories on this already. You know, and he enjoyed the movie more than, you know, me and my my other friend who had like this bigger understanding of what was going on. Right. Like he didn't watch what if he didn't have this this guesstimation of what Dr. Strange would look like. That's a blessing for those people. So how does Marvel give people like you and I everything we want while also hitting all those marks, those other marks who just show up for a movie they think looks pretty fun? Yeah. And I feel like they do they do that by you know the the leaks leaks to get people excited about those movies like that leak for um on howard stern the other day i will i i'm 100 percent convinced that this wasn't an accidental hot mic situation that they said okay this is how we're gonna leak we're talking about dr doom get people excited about that and you know gauge the interest and you know um the the interactions online and you know they have their own you know crazy algorithms and things like that um i feel like the cameos and i feel like the 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 theories and stuff that's what gets i feel like that's what gets us into the theater more than any kind of trailer you know it's the theories and the build-up and you know unfortunately a lot of the times um they don't you can't live up to the build-up. You build it up to be this yeah. crazy thing. You kind of again, you want to get excited, but you also have to check your check your expectations and your excitement at the door as well. It's a it's a very 
weird and difficult kind of balance. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, you know, they do in trailers lie sometimes. You know, like oh, absolutely. They will, they will take things out of a trailer and then reinsert them for the real movie to give them a little more shock value to leave some stuff, you know, behind the curtain, which is a good thing. I, I, I'm fine with that. I know some people get frustrated. Oh, they're they're just toying with us. Like I I find it almost impressive when a company like that can can you know control an entire audience with a string, right? Like it's kind of like being at a concert and you're watching the opener and like 15% of the audience is locked in because they know this band, they love this band. And it's like, all right, you know, everyone else is like, all right, this is cool, whatever. And we're just getting ready for the big show. And then they play the one song everyone knows. Everyone gets excited and blah, blah, blah. it's a good time. Oh, their opener was pretty good. And then you watch the main event, the, the actual headliner of the show, and they just have every single person in the audience, you know, locked in. Yeah. Every single note, every single uh, solo from an instrument it is just locked in. Everyone's paying attention. It, it's kind of like that little dichotomy there where Marvel can pull those strings to get certain people interested in certain ways and others interested in other ways, right? So with the trailer, and we'll, we'll start segueing into predictions here, there are some things that can become bigger MCU picture stuff. So all... um there's that picture, the shot in the trailer where Jane Foster is in the middle of this big, I don't even know what to call it. Looks like, uh, I don't know the word, not a hall, but you know what I mean? It's a big a accord. Yeah. And there's all these giant statues there. Those statues are the likes of like infinity. And uh, I'm going to mess some of these up here, but the living tribunal, it looks like there's a watcher in there. Uh, Lady death, like all these huge people from the comics that, control things beyond a planet and beyond the galaxy and that's where the multiverse stuff can come in that's one of the big things that can lead to something big picture mcu in this film um so they show stuff like that in the trailer and that gets the nerds uh, excited because we learn about it all and then we get excited for the movie whereas you know my friend joe who hasn't watched the trailer is even like oh those three floating heads what is that what is infinity is that a person is it a is it a theory? Like they might be confused, but they'll probably get it. They'll probably still enjoy the movie. And it's like, it's like two different people watching the same thing from yeah. completely different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it keeps you on your toes and, and it gets you, and it gets you excited for, you know, and maybe that's the secret sauce. It gets, it gets different people excited for, for many different reasons. Right. So again, um, yeah, again, I, I'm not, I'm not super hyped yeah. about the movie, but um, so well, you're seeing it on day two. You're seeing it on day two. Um, all right, so let's do some predictions here about what we think may transpire. Let's start off with a, a possibly more obvious one. You know, everyone is assuming something here, so I'm assuming people who are watching this are probably more on our side of stuff. Maybe they're trying to learn right now. But mm -hmm. in the trailer, they're showing this. Uh, huge meeting of the gods where zeus is there and other gods are there it looks like there's um a, a bast god which is the the god from black panther the actual black panther uh, there's so there's going to be a lot of other god entities from different you know religions and etc deities and whatnot at, at this place everyone's assuming that thor gets pulled into this place and then there's this havoc and gore is going to come in and just murder all, not all, but a lot of these gods because he is a yeah. god butcher. Um, that's been like the worst kept secret, but it's also not guaranteed to be true yet. Do mm -hmm. you, but do you predict, Andrew, 
that that God scene, the meeting of all the gods is going to end in a bloodbath where multiple big time, quote unquote, big time gods just get slayed up. Absolutely. It's going to be a Godfather, Godfather type, uh, type ending where the, you know, well, that's gonna I, don't be know, I don't know. I don't know if he's gonna go into the bathroom and get a gun, uh, but he's definitely gonna go in there. He's gonna gonna go fuck some shit up. <laughs> so you're fully on board for that. I feel like that'll be exciting. Yeah. It'll yeah. work out like the uh, the Illuminati did in Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Where if we didn't have all these theories about what the Illuminati was gonna mean for the next five years of the MCU, and we just got shocked by that, it was incredible. I mean, Wanda just brutally murdered all of these high level heroes brutally right like it, was, no it was just that, you know it, it was, was just a, it was just a device um for the for the mcu to use to show how powerful wanda is without taking someone that's very important off of the board and i feel like that's going to be kind of maybe as though maybe they'll do that trick a second time where they'll take all of these gods out just to prove how powerful uh christian bell's character actually is Right. Without, gonna, without someone being of consequence, like Russell Crowe's definitely going to die. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and like, I know Alex, um, Alec is on the, the corner of Alec Argento, our other co-host here usually. Um, he's on the corner of Hercules being mm-hmm. one of the gods there who doesn't die because he has such a big uh, role in the comics. So he, they'll probably have some sort of plan for him down the line. So like he's a type of guy who would survive, but you kill all these other gods. He seems like this super powerful dude, which he is. And, yeah. and then, you know, you have your stakes, you have your stakes. So that should be early. It's hard to predict anything else other than that. Like, I don't know. I don't know what else could even happen there. Like those guys have to die at this point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let's move on. Let me ask you a question about this. Jane Foster mm-hmm. is now a Thor. A, th- a Thor? Is she, she is Thor. Thor. She is Thor. Even though Thor is Thor. Uh, we'll see mm-hmm. how that plays out. How she got her powers is a question mark for now we're going to probably learn obviously um do you think do you do you, before i even uh you know give you options do you have a, a specific take there or do you want me to give you some options uh i don't really have a specific take, but i assume it's gonna it's she whatever she was doing since uh you know dark world that it has, it has something they'll probably do some kind of flashback um because she was really into the cosmos and into study and astrology and all that stuff. So I assume her studies took her on some crazy path and that's how she, you know, ended up getting her powers. That's, that's, that's my assumption. Okay. Yeah. So my, my prediction is similar. It's uh, when she got, you know, cursed with the ether, which ended mm. up being, was it the soul stone? I believe. I'm, 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 yes. I'm soul stone. Red that soul that stone. radiation, you know, made her incredibly sick. And then there's a theory out there that uh, uh, infinity or eternity, I don't know. One of those mm. big time deities there takes basically like sorrow for her for dealing with that and gives her life through these powers. That's a take that's out there that I think makes a lot of sense. And why is she in the middle of that room with all those statues around her, uh, with the power, with the with the Majoliner? Mil- mil- I'm sounding like that freaking video. Mm-hmm. John- how, do you, how do you pronounce Thor's hammer? <laughs> Jonathan. Um, <laughs> that's a great one. Uh, so I think that's probably going to be, it's going to be something with that ether getting into her that it's going to lead her somewhere to, to get those powers. I don't think that's a huge swing in either direction, but it'll be interesting to see where that comes from and where it's going to go. Cause like 
is Natalie Portman about to be in the next couple years of the MCU plans, or is she going to be one and done here where her and Thor have some sort of ending where they find out what love and thunder is. And then she's gone forever. No, I feel like she's a, I feel like the torch is being passed to the next set of Avengers and Natalie Portman's going to be uh, one of them, one of the main Avengers. Um, They're going to change it up that way. I feel like Chris Hemsworth will be, it, He's going to be in the MCU until he doesn't want to be in the MCU anymore. And I feel like he has a ton of fun making movies and stuff. So um, he won't be the Thor, but um, I feel like Natalie Portman, you know, being in this movie and coming back, she's not just going to come back to do one and done. You know, she's coming back for the checks. She's coming back to, to and she's going to be a major part of the MCU moving forward. Hmm. Okay. Next question. Do you predict that we see Loki in this film via mm. Thing. timeline difference or flashback etc do we think that there is a tom hiddleston loki sighting in this film in any way shape or form oh that's a good that's a good like, question then like a picture you know like an actual thing that was filmed for this movie mm, no okay no but maybe like a flashback scene perhaps yeah if it's a flashback um yeah nothing nothing current it maybe it'd be like uh Something that maybe when Thor's reminiscing and he's, you know, sad about what's going on, he'll reminisce about something that's, uh, you know, current with the story that happened in his past with Loki. So yeah. if that, if if anything, if not, but, but I don't think Loki's going to be any kind of integral part of the story uh, going forward or in the, the present timeline. Other than for maybe some of Thor's pain and et cetera. But uh, yes. yeah. Okay. Um, now on... Uh, on a similar beat there, do we think, how do, how do I phrase this one? Do we think that Thor learns anything of the timeline stuff, the TVA stuff? Does he learn anything about that? Is there any sighting of a TVA situation in this film? I don't think so. Um, again, I think it's, uh, I don't know. It Again, it feels like more of a character study on Thor and, and putting Natalie Portman's place on the board rather than um, delving into anything else that's kind of happened in the MCU. I feel like it's going to be a very self-contained story outside of putting pieces on the board. Um, I'd be very surprised if the TVA shows up. Okay. Which guardian of the galaxy steals the show? And this is more of opinion based. Like, which guardian do you do you walk away from the film saying, "Ah, oh, man, Groot was awesome today. Rocket was great in that one." Or you know, which which one of the guardians do you think really really sends it in this film? I feel like uh, Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pratt playing off of each other. I feel like that that was enjoyable in um, in in Endgame and mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, was the uh, Infinity War? Infinity. I feel like them playing off each other was, was pretty well, and you kind of got a little bit of hint of that in the in the trailer. So them playing off each other a little bit more, I feel like that's going to be you know that's going to be the thing that people are talking about more than. Uh, I feel like Drax and um, Dave Bautista. I feel like he's a very one note kind of guy. Maybe he you know has another funny. You can't <laughs> see me. I'm, I'm invisible kind of line. But outside of that, uh, you know. I don't think- <laughs> He may only have one move, but man, is a good a good move. Yeah, 
it's funny every time it makes me laugh i'm laughing just thinking about it um yeah. my prediction is some sort of Groot big moment uh, there's a Groot animated series perhaps or a Groot coming of age series that's in the works that was announced or something like that so i feel like Groot could have something here they love making is, is Groot an adult or is Groot like a late in his 20s in this movie y- like why he's a young adult i think here he's growing mm-hmm. he's a growing boy and the biggest paycheck for the least bit of work for Vin Diesel to <laughs> continues to cash in. I mean, golly, yeah. what a freaking role that guy landed. God damn. That's so good. Uh, Bradley Cooper as rocket will is always mm-hmm. fun. I think the guardians are just so fun. Um, yeah. They have their Christmas special. Coming. Yeah. That's coming up too. That's coming up this holiday. That's coming up in November. Again, there's so much Marvel content coming out where it's just like, it's almost overwhelming. Yes, it's true. It's a little overwhelming. Uh, so something probably gets set up there for them. But they, I, I assume that they're going to be only in the first act or so. Yeah, that's what, that would be, be my guess. They'll be left behind. Um, all right. So now bigger picture stuff here. I have a, a feeling based off the trailers that Gore and Thor are going to connect on a level they didn't expect, right? Because there's that line, you're not like the rest of them. There's something like that, that Gore says towards Thor seemingly in the trailer. And that's going to create some sort of, I don't know if it's going to be a pause in Gore's master plan to kill all these gods because he sees some sort of humanity. Uh, But basically my question is, what's your prediction on Gore's ending here? Because it's going to kind of suck that Christian Bale, if he does a great job, which we expect him to, with Gore, that if it's one and done, which seems like most likely here. But so what's your prediction on Gore's ending, how it goes down? Does he just get killed off? Does he somehow escape and just go high? I don't know. What, what do you think is going to happen there? I think it's more likely that he gets killed off rather than staying. Again, I don't think, you know, Christian Bale comes in and – I don't know. I feel like he doesn't do franchises. I feel like he's not like he's too big of an actor to be like, I'm going to sign up and do seven movies or whatever it is. So I think it's very more likely that he gets killed in some kind of dramatic way with uh, like a team up of uh, Natalie Portman and Chris Hemsworth um, some somehow some way that way rather than him, uh, you know, leaving or, you know, deciding he doesn't want to do what he's doing anymore. So unfortunately i would love to have christian bale again he's now phenomenal actor great in everything he does but i don't i think he's a one and done yeah i tend to agree unfortunate but probably the truth and and probably uh you know the most realistic option there the one thing i would see possible is if it's kind of open-ended like wanda where like did he die like could he come back if they really wanted him to like maybe if he signs on you know marvel's trying to be a little more actor friendly with these contracts you're not signing on for 10 films you're signing Mm -hmm. on for one at a time so i'm not going to completely write it off but i agree most likely he'll be done by the end of the movie um you know another thing about these movies it's tough is 98 percent of the time the good guys come back and figure it out you know uh infinity wars obviously was one of the best mcu films and probably because they ended in defeat mm. you know it was such a jarring experience not knowing going into that movie um so i think that's possible you can argue that no way home didn't exactly end in, in positivity it ended in in freaking heartbreak to be quite honest so yeah. it's always a, a 
tough risk to take to end in negativity, but it's something that does land. It doesn't feel like Tyka's possibility. It feels like, honestly, Tyka's thing is like something horrible will happen, but it'll still end up being like a positive somehow. It seems seems like something's going to go down like that. Um, all right. Last, last question for predictions here. If there's a character either towards the end or in a post-credit scene that we are unfamiliar with to this point, who do you think it may be? Or even if it's someone we're very smallly familiar with at this point, like somebody who's made an appearance or two or very minimal, is there anything big at the end or post-credit wise that you think can show up here? That's a good question. Um, I feel I have kind of two answers here. One, I feel like they could check in with Gamora or the clone of from the other timeline Gamora and see what she's doing. Cause I feel like she's not going to be, she's not hanging out with uh, the guardians of the galaxy. I don't think she's there. I think feel like she's off kind of doing her own thing. So maybe it's a check in with her and she encounters somebody else and, and does that. Or maybe we uh, check back in with the Eternals would mm. be my other guess. Yeah, a celestial perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Celestial kind of a, kind of a deal. Um, and maybe, maybe check in with them and see what's going on. So, you know, maybe some kind of crossover, or, uh, maybe set some, set something up for whatever, whatever the next, whatever the next, uh, celestial event or adventure is going to be. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a good, I think that's a good possibility. The celestial situation, especially since this, this will deal with like, that uh, MCU authority ladder, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like the gods like Thor and the ones who, you know, work the different realms of the cosmos and whatever the galaxy. Then there's the celestials, which are even bigger than that. They create the galaxies. Then there's infinity and the living tribunal who are even above that. They're the big judgment people, the mm-hmm. big decision makers. Um, so that, that would make sense if something leads back to that middle ground where it's a celestial or another watcher, like if it's the yeah. watcher. I think is a possibility where he's now seeing all this saying like, okay, we got a situation in our hands. Uh, my prediction is going to be on the widely rumored Namor in Black Panther 2 as the main villain there or main, I don't know if he's exactly a villain or not. It's kind of unclear what he'll be in the MCU. Uh, Namor isn't a villain all the time, right? Mm, sometimes, anti-hero. Yeah, some, somewhere weird like that. So I think that setup makes the most sense where – you know, this deity is represented at this God meeting where Zeus is there and Thor's chained up before they see a massacre. I think maybe uh, Namor's deity, uh, you know, it's like a Mayan God or something like that um, shows up and doesn't get killed. And at the end is shown still alive, like, you know, counting his chickens, get trying to get back to, to his space. So I think that's my prediction on, if we see something brand new or something that we kind of saw during the movie and we revisit my, my guess is black Panther two and it's Namor, but that's a good, that's a good one. It's been rumored pretty hard. Um, and you know, as good as the MCU is at, at keeping in secrets, they're also just as good as we discussed before at purposely leaking stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, is it a leak that Namor is in this or is it like a purposeful leak? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. And that really would mean the difference of them actually putting this in a Thor film at the end or not. Uh, Cause that, that would lead to some of those things that we're talking about that we miss from the last phases. 
where one thing led to another thing and made sense. It got bigger and that would actually move the story along. Like not yeah. seeing anything Thor related with Dr. Strange that only came out a couple months prior was a little bit shocking to me, right? Like you thought maybe yeah. they done something there uh, and they didn't. So I'm not going to be surprised either way, but that would be my best guess. That's a great guess, my friend. Yeah. That's all we got. Thor, Love, and Thunder predictions. Andrew, are you going to be texting on Friday night? Mo- All right, here's your last prediction. Mm-hmm. Is your text going to be, oh, my God, that was actually amazing? All right, that was actually very good. Meh. Or, oh, man, they're losing it. I'm probably in the middle ground. I'm always, again, I'm I'm usually um... – you know, pretty even edge when it comes to stuff like that. I feel like, you know, if they, if they can surprise me in some kind of way, I'll be, I'll be very happy about it. If they can give me something satisfactory, that's kind of really all I'm looking for here is to kind of just add that feeling of satisfaction as I, as I leave the theater. But um, we actually didn't touch upon the most important MCU kind of news from the last couple of weeks. I kind of just want to end the podcast on. Um I'm gonna. We're gonna go in a weird direction here, my friend. Did you know that um, they opened up a Disney World restaurant in um, in California, uh, or in a, a Marvel MCU restaurant in Disney World in California? Um, and it's it's like it has to do with like the quantum realm and they shrink stuff. So Ant Man and the Wasp are are on this like video before you go in dining, and Ant Man Paul Rudd confirms the Thanos butthole theory. It is now MCU canon, my friend. And he said, hold on. I want you to know that there's a, there's a rumor going around that, you know, why didn't I go shrink down, go inside Thanos and explode? And he goes, first off, gross. Second off, and it, and it would never work for a myriad of reasons. And he's about to go into it. And then uh, the Wasp, uh, played by the actual actors, like, no, 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 we don't have time to go into this. But the Thanos butthole theory is MCU canon. And that's, I feel like we've, we've, we've buried the lead here. We can go on for another hour just talking about that. Oh man, that's great. Uh, I love, how, how have I not seen that? That's, that's my question. I'll send you the video when we're, uh, when we're done here. Please do. Um, on that front, in Miss Marvel, which you're not watching, there's mm-hmm. a reference to a podcast inside the MCU. And it, I forget now the exact name, but it's like Big Me, Little Me. And it's Ant- it's Scott Lang's podcast where he interviews other heroes from the Avengers and et cetera. And they talk about all the happenings of uh, the Battle of Earth and, you know, all, all that crap. So, A, would you listen to Scott Lang's podcast? B, who else in the MCU would you expect to have a podcast? Oh, uh <laughs> I feel like uh, if, if we're talking about people in this movie, I feel like Rocket would 100% have a podcast. Like Info like <laughs> InfoWars type of podcast? Or just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. The only thing why Rocket wouldn't have one is because he has to keep a low profile for all his, mm. you know, all his, all his shenanigans. Well, the Guardians could have one just like a group with like an ensemble. Yeah. You know? Um, that could work. <laughs> that could work. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think. If anybody else would even be like remotely interesting enough to do it, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know who else would be interesting enough. Scott Lang and um, oh my god, who's his his partner? Played by um, Michael. What's his name? Oh yeah, god. I know what you're talking about. I 
the minor characters or the the TI Wait. if he's not in jail he would, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely the lead for the best podcast out there mm-hmm. of any of these and then the guardians probably a close second I, I did mean to ask you about Gamora before so that was a good pull by you I think mm-hmm. I think there's a good chance we see a, a Gamora situation here maybe yeah I don't know. we'll see we shall see all right Andrew this was great fun hopefully we'll get some predictions right and uh, hopefully we'll have fun watching the movie. Most importantly, hopefully we all have a great time in the movie theaters watching this uh, this big big time film. So, Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks for the baseball talk. And we'll be back soon talking baseball throughout the summer. And maybe we'll even get some some recap thoughts after we all see Thor. So, yeah, Sounds good, Fred. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. If you haven't seen the other videos, if you're watching this on YouTube, we got a baseball video talking Mets and Yankees. We also got NBA free agency takes with yours truly, if you listen on the podcast, you done already heard all that. So thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned for more stuff as we go out through the summer into football season. We're going to blink, Andrew, and we'll be doing fantasy drafts. Mm-hmm. I would say I, I, I would say I can't wait, but I can wait because summer summer needs to slow down. So that's Absolutely. all we got. Thanks for listening. Subway Sports Talk, y'all. Cheers. See ya.